0: Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Right This week, we are so excited, as I always am, to meet someone that I think everybody's going to be excited about. Um, I have the honor of introducing Steph Fuentes, and I am so excited to have you. Um, so thank you for being on the Jolly Podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here as well. Yes, and I am excited when I get to meet new people, uh, which I have been getting to do a lot lately. Um, And I know, so I wanted to maybe just start a little bit because everybody has their own story. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at the UN.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a long journey. Um, You know, I'm from Southern California. I come from Mexican migrant parents. Um, I'm the first in my family to go to any school after high school. I went to uh, community college for like four years while I worked full-time, um, f- finally transferred. I went away into the Bay Area where I did two years at a public university in Sonoma where I studied political science. Um, and that's where I kind of got into, uh, I would call it a UN, United Nations, kind of like a nerdy group where we participated and a mock sessions and my love for international development grew from there um and wow. just uh yeah that led into a foray into local politics which led into the Peace Corps um and that awoke my <laughs> my consciousness to how much I didn't know about development work and the problematic of being a uh, you know although women of color have coming from a western nation imposing uh stuff into local communities and which then led into grad school to learn more
0: about that and now I'm an intern at the United Nations so <laughs> that's so awesome so awesome so so tell me a little bit cuz i know i do want to kind of start with just some of the recruitment process because it's not like people just wake up and then they can just get into the UN intern process. So how how did you even find out about it, and how did how were you able to get into it?
1: Yeah, I like I said, I've kind of learned more about the United Nations when I was in uh, undergrad, um, and even then I knew there was a lot of barriers um, because while the UN is present in almost all nations and has local offices. There's a lot of barriers for people of color, especially for poor people who have no conne- connections into politics or diplomacy to get into that st- sort of stuff. So even like when I was, you know, uh, I was an untraditional student because I was like 27 in my junior year of, of uh, undergrad. <laughs> um, even then I knew I kind of had to lay the groundwork there to get to where I am now, you know, when I'm almost 32. So I, you know, got into model United Nations, um, try to network, uh, make connections with people that were working in the New York offices. My professors, um, were really well connected as well. Um, they suggested, um, you know, just work your way towards that, uh, Think about grad school, think about like meeting people that will connect you to these positions because it like you said, you just you don't just apply, you have to know somebody to get into beyond the application pool. Um, so from there, I, you know, got into got involved in local politics where I met people that were in positions of power and you know, who knew people who might be in positions where I wanted to be. And from then, um, because I didn't have any diplomatic experiences somebody had told me join the Peace Corps which is kind of like a organized development organization but you know not not really because it's it's a way for the U.S. to enhance their diplomatic relationships with uh, the Global South and through their get experience um, which I did in some ways I learned like I said uh, I learned how much I didn't know about the type of intentional work that goes into development and the type of work that the UN actually does. And because I was so because I was getting all those experiences of like, I don't know how to create sustainable projects, I don't know how to involve communities, that led me to looking for grad schools. And the grad school that I'm at right now, Middlebury Institute of International Studies. It's known as a school where you go if you want to get into the United Nations, um, which is my goal, because back when I was 26. Um, and from then, I, I've been very intentional about networking with the type of people that I, I want to work with, especially people that are um, people of color, people that know the barriers that um, some way got their foot into the door and are now opening that up for people like me. And I networked with some alumni I met some wonderful, uh, you know, Americans uh, that are working with the United, uh, UN Women. Um, some alumni that are in this group that we, that we have is called Shades, which is the group for BIPOC alumni. And yeah, they like opened the doors. They told me, you know, their career fairs, I can get your resume in. So i done like 20 informational interviews, got into career fairs. Finally, spoke with somebody that's like, "Yeah, we can get you into this U.S. funded program at the UN because there's also the barrier of UN uh, internships not being paid." So, yeah, after yeah. all of that, I'm finally in here. Um, awesome. As an intern, it's yeah, it's it's quite the journey. It's it's a lot.
0: So, tell me a little bit about the UN, and I'm um, specifically. It's interesting to me, because I think when we were talking, you were saying how, you know, when you're in the U.N., it's like America is almost in in the minority.
1: Yes. Um,
0: And so, you know, like, can you talk about, like, what do you do at the U.N.? And then maybe talk. I mean, I think I find it cool that they actually have their own ERGs for BIPOC, you know, BIPOC uh employees and stuff that's pretty awesome
1: yeah so the UN does a lot um you know it started after it was created after World War II to prevent you know mass scale Wars but it's evolved into an agency that does everything they do work with women they do work with children you know work in the areas of agriculture health economy peace building the agency where i'm at it's called the international um, atomic energy agency and we work with nuclear um and the agency is both the nuclear watchdog of the world so you hear about it like now with the ukraine and russia you hear about it with iran um, but we also do a lot of development work the department that i am specifically takes nuclear technology and science and we apply it to development programs you know helping Um, cancer prevention with radiotherapy. We do modification to plants so that they're more drought-resistant. We help with uh, monitoring plastic in the ocean and in rivers. And it's at the agency, what I've I've learned uh, within all the interns, there's quite a bit of us, is that Americans are a little bit in a position of privilege. um, Because we're underrepresented at the agency, um, throughout all agencies, throughout the UN system, it seems that uh, Americans don't want to work in uh, very diplomatic, bureaucratic agencies like the UN, because one, they don't pay that well. And two, it seems like there's a the lack of intercultural competency that we're, that we're taught at at a, you know the state level over there. Um, So there's it, not very desirable positions, and they're actually like actively recruit Americans when they're opening up positions in the U.N. Um, it's um, a bit of a sour point because we're seeing as a Western country that's more developed, but then they want that we're also underrepresented and they want to give us jobs. So they see that as a bit of an unfairness and uh, we're not the most well like in the U.N. And, and so, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's a different line to walk for sure. I, I think because, you know, everybody's talking about recruiting and diversity, equity and inclusion. But yeah. I, you know, it's an interesting view, you know, kind of sitting from the UN perspective, uh, when you're thinking about, you know, and myself anyway, as an American. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's so, so interesting. And then So you were talking about some of the things that you're doing with, um, you know, development of, you know, utilizing nuclear technology, I'll say, for things like cancer and and all of that, which has to be, you know, pretty rewarding um, when you're, you know, especially as a woman of color that is, you know, kind of sitting in this in the seat at the U.N., uh, really kind of making sure people have the information to make change, not only for one country, but potentially for many.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been pretty interesting. I have like the privilege of working in this specific region, which is Latin America and the Caribbean. And, you know, it's such a diverse group of nations with, you know, a plethora of different languages and communities and needs. And it's been really great because the agency, does do a good job of hiring people from these nations that know their communities well and will advocate for, for them at the local level. Um, and even though, you know, I am Latina, I, I don't know intimately all of these communities because I have been raised in California. And even though I like to refer to Southern California, as Sudo, Mexico, it really is not me. It's not, <laughs> it's, not me. it's very different. Um, <laughs> So it's been, it used to be, it used to be. <laughs> <It did. laughs> and in many ways it's still it
0: still is. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been great. I've learned a lot. I mean, I was one of those people that would hear nuclear and be like, you know, thought of all the negative stuff, thought of Hiroshima and uh, Fukushima and thought like, but we don't want nuclear. It's radioactive, you get sick from it. And like, I've learned that it really does help like not only with energy needs but you know cancer care or even getting your x-ray like if you break a, like a leg or an arm you get an x-ray done that's nuclear technology um and it's like mostly cost effective a lot of the a- agency put it puts in a lot of the budget um and really does from what i've seen uh try to bringing country ownership of the solutions and live them with a the technology that they can then develop on their own and and develop their nation as, as they see the need for, which
0: is great yeah. and refreshing. It's awesome. That's awesome. So you said your path um also went through kind of the political space.
1: Yes, I did. What
0: was what was that like?
1: <laughs> um, it was a very short foray into local politics in the bay area um i did some campaign work which is where we met our, our mutual friend serena uh shout out to serena <laughs> <laughs> um and it was great to see like local politics in action you know considering the state of the u.s politics now this was before you know 2020 and all that but um yeah, it was, you know, just trying to I've always been fascinated by how organizations work and how governments work and why they are the way they are, and who's involved in, you know, decision making, who's left out. So back then I wanted to understand, you know, being in a in Sonoma County, uh, where a lot of the farming is done by migrants, uh, where a lot of the wealth is not, you know, given to migrants, is given to the to people that um, don't look like us, so just um, so I wanted to get involved in grassroots movements. I wanted to see like how we can get Latinos and uh, Black people and Asian people involved to get more um, of a share in power and decision making. Um, but I realized back then I was probably too young and too idealistic to really kind of get more involved into it. It got dissolution pretty fast. I really saw like not the ugly side, but the difficult choices and compromising that goes into politics. And I was like, I'm not sure if this is for me. I don't know if I have the heart to to get into that because I'm. I sometimes give too much and then get burned out quickly. So. Um, that yeah. it was in that space where I met somebody. They were like, maybe you should uh, do the peace court. Seems like something up your alley, where you get to help communities. Um, but from more of a like um, grassroots, not sort of political red tape perspective, which was a lie. The second part, the first <laughs> part was <laughs> you did it <get> in <laughs> your community, but there's always red tape involved somehow. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was a great look into how local politics work. I realized that if I were ever to go into politics, it would probably be like at the city council level because there it's where politics is most most accountable, right? Because usually it's your neighbor or your, I don't know, your doctor or your local um, educator running for office. So you know them and you can hold them accountable and it's more transparent.
0: Yeah, you definitely walk by and see them and, you know, you can kind of touch and feel uh, those versus the ones in, you know, even even at the county or state level sometimes you don't always see them although in my district we see ours quite a bit Um, so uh, but i will you know it's it's difficult to to feel like you're truly connected um, if you can't kind of reach out and touch so um, you know it's challenging for sure do you think you'll be in political office one day so your is city council in your future you know, I've considered it and people have told me, like, you'd be really great. Um, but I
1: don't know if I'm the type of person that can compromise. <laughs> if I think something like, you know, we really need universal health care, we really need public transportation, like, I would fight till we get that. And I know that I would probably not make many friends
0: <laughs> going to that. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so then shifting gears a little bit. Because today, and it's quite late out there right now. You are in Vienna. Yes, yes, I'm I'm in Vienna. (laughs) So, and I know some of the things I. I think we had talked, and we talked about how, you know, they're just when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, some of the biases that we may have, for example, are like when we see signs for, you know, like pregnant parking, there'll be a woman on the sign or, you know, there'll be, you know, a woman changing diapers. If it's, you know, for a bathroom or, you know, whatever, a baby changing station or something like that. And I know in Vienna, things are a little bit different in terms of what you see. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think... Yeah. It's so interesting to me because you know, you don't that's why they call it unconscious bias. You don't actually even realize you have some of the unconscious biases that you have.
1: Yeah. So, you know, keeping in line with with childcare and, and and women and child child rearing, um that was one of the unconscious biases that I also held until I came here and I realized I always expect women to be the ones with children like whenever I see children, I expect the mother to be behind that. And when I got here, I realized that that's not the case here. Um, I started seeing a lot of men with strollers, holding babies, going after babies. And I started realizing that I would see it equally with like men and women. And it'd be like, hold on, (laughs) like what's happening? Like, I would see like I'd I realized in myself that I'd see a woman with a kid, didn't think about it. Okay, it's women with a kid. But then I would see a man with their child and be like, okay, that's cool. But then it started happening like the 15th time, the 20th time. And I was like, what is happening here? Like this is kind of cool. You see like most almost more men uh, taking their kids to school than women in the morning. And I I'm still kind of amazed at that. Um, not to say that there aren't dads that don't take care of their kids back in the US, but we definitely see a lot more mothers, you know, taking their kids to school, or it's their kind of their role to make sure that they go to the doctor so that they're going to like whatever activity. Whereas here I found that they're, it's more equal. Um, it might have to do with, you know, the way that, they're giving parental leave here it's not maternal leave it's parental and yeah it, there's not a lot of like division of like gendered roles here in terms of parenting the way that i've seen it um you know anecdotally in the subway it's it's been pretty cool
0: yeah that is pretty cool and i mean and i've never been to vienna so what what other things are i know we talked about just even the safety of it in terms of yeah. you know and and i think some of our conversation was even like you know when you think about safety like why is it so safe there and i think you were talking about a lot of you know potential reasons for that so
1: yeah, yeah. so i think you know some of that conversation was that i've noticed that here I don't see as much police policing or police officers as there is back home. Um, there is police stations in every district, but I've been here four months and I think I've seen police officers maybe four times. Crime rate is relatively low, but one of the things that I've you know done in PERK some some light research on and from speaking with people here is that. Vienna takes care of its people, it provides social services, it provides mental health services, it makes sure that there's rent control, it makes sure that if people are hungry, that they're fed. if they don't have a home, that there's home provided for them. And it's not perfect, but there is quite a low, low rate of crime. And because of that, I'm not sure, you know, it's like the what came first, chicken and the egg, if there's low crime, because there's a lack of feeling policed or if there's a lack of police because there's, you know, no need for a person to maybe commit a small crime of like, I don't know, stealing something or if they're going through mental health stuff, they're, they're having their needs met. Um, and it feels quite safe to me, not having that presence makes me feel a little bit safer. I don't know if it's just my bias as a person of color. But yeah, it, it's made me wonder, like, does providing social services like mental health and uh, making sure that people are housed and fed and warm uh, lower crime and thus prevent the need from having an overly police state? And it's made me want to research that more and wonder if that model can re- replicate it in, in places like the U.S., where we do have an over over-policed presence in our communities.
0: Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. And what's interesting to me is your work at the UN because as you think about getting to know the community, you start really realizing all of the things that intersect yeah. and you know potentially why things exist the way they do. And then you start questioning, right? Especially now, I think you start questioning like, why is it that way? And why does it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. And sh- can we change it to something else? What else is out there? Um, and I think it used to be that you could kind of pull together politicians to kind of come to the center and figure out like, hey, maybe this could work. Um, But, you know, I know in the US things have been so divisive um, that you don't see that kind of connection like we used to.
1: It's really been polarized and to me, it always goes back to like the where country started, right? Like, I, I, there's this, uh, I guess this argument here at least, I always get told here that Americans bring race into everything, and my argument is like, we don't. You guys started with the race when you, know, you started colonizing, <laughs> <laughs> but um, they always say it's about class. And from my understanding, as you know, the argument of like separating Indigenous, Black and white, you know, poor, poor whites was, let's make it about, they're taking your stuff and which I think it's it's what's happening now. You know, migrants come to take our jobs. Um, other people are too overrelying on the system, and you know what's left for the poor white person. And that's when they stick their claws and and kind of like, you know, make propaganda towards that. And I think it's really sad that in the U.S. and not that it's not happening here, but that in the U.S. we can't compromise or or come together on issues because we have like that scarcity mindset that if I don't have it they have it um where it really is like a percentage of people hoarding all the resources um Mm. but (laughs) I'm gonna go at a socialist time but yeah it, it really like living here has made me question like why we can't provide the basic necessities for people in the US. Why we're, you know, taxed as much as some people here in Europe, but then we don't have access to healthcare. We don't have a um, you know, affordable education, we can't house our people. And, you know, we we get fed this line that America is the greatest democracy and we have the greatest economy, but like where do we see that? We don't see that. You know, here people don't make as much money. Their minimum wage is 1,200 euros. But I seen maybe two people experiencing homelessness here. Wow. I, you know, like I said, there's no, there's like almost no police presence. There's public transportation that can take you anywhere. And it's like really affordable. If I get sick, I have access to a doctor. So it really makes you think about like, are we the best? Or are we just like a place that was also colonized and we were just given the illusion that we were never colonized and that we developed? But I don't know. It's it's really made me think about where we are as a nation and like what we who who we really are. Like, are we a developed nation or just we or are we also a developing nation that just has, you know, the Gucci belt?
0: (laughs) (laughs) interesting. Well, and I find it really interesting because um, you know, I mean, you and your experience at, you know, in your you're in your early 30s. Um, I'm let's just say a little older than that. <laughs> but uh but it's it's so interesting to me because I know it, you know, when I was 30, I wasn't quite thinking the way you are now. And so I see so many Folks in your age group that are, and I'm not saying they didn't think that way, you know, um, you know, cause a lot of people did, yeah. but I, I mean, for me, it was like getting into politics and, you know, understanding your community and all of that, you know, really has just come over the last, you know, yeah. maybe 15 years. Um, for me, because I think, you know, sometimes you look up and it's like, oh, I got a husband and kids and, you know, I'm like doing this, but I got to focus and I just got to get to work and get home. Um, but there's all these other things that, you know, you start thinking about. And so for me personally, I'm actually really encouraged by, you know, the generation because information is coming so fast yeah. that um you are really having to make decisions much quicker than, you know, generations before. So um it's encouraging as an older person to see our youth kind of thinking that like that um for me. So I think that's awesome.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for referring to me as a youth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I 30 is a youth because I'm not I'm not 30. So <laughs> well, you
1: look like you're in your, your 30s, too. <laughs> but uh, Bless your
0: heart. thank you. <laughs>
1: um, you know, for me, it's been interesting. I think coming from migrant parents has always it, it led me to be interested in development because I would always question why would somebody want to leave their community, the place where they feel safe, where they have their ancestral ties, where they speak the language to go to a place where they aren't loved. I mean, my parents are Mexican and while we're in a place where, you know, Spanish is spoken, you can find a Mexican restaurant in California anywhere. Um, but at the national level, we're villainized. We're get told, you know, we cartels and they bring violence and they're bad men. Um, so I always wondered, even since I was little, why would they leave their home? Why would people want to leave their home? And it's not because they genuinely believe they, would love America more it's just because that's where opportunity was and it made me question well why is this opportunity not offered in Mexico or like why are like you know places like Haiti or Dominica Republicana or you know Yemen like what about their systems failing that the people feel a need to leave you know whether it's mm-hmm. political violence or lack of economic opportunity like how can we provide these countries with the tools that they need to develop in the way that they need to develop. And yeah, that's, you know, since then that question the I was little girl has led me to, to where I am now and still trying to figure out ways in, in which we can empower communities to change and develop in the way that they want to, to um, not feel the need to leave their home to, to work. You yeah. you have doctors working as farmers, which farm work is important, but I couldn't imagine, you know, I have an aunt who's a psychologist. She was a psychologist in Mexico. And because of necessity, she works in, in Central Valley, California, picking, you know, being a farm worker and she's an educated woman. And I know, like, like I said, farm work is really important, but we really have, um, it, it's kind of sad that she had to leave her profession, something that she loved because she couldn't make money, because she couldn't afford, because um, you know, many reasons uh, where she had to disconnect from, from her home to to come somewhere else to be vilified just because there was lack of opportunity or safety.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, I had a conversation with my mother who is from Panama. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and it, you know, it struck her, I think, um, with all of the events of January 6th, mm-hmm. Um, You know, we were sitting here at the time and like, you know, what's going on? And it actually triggered something for her when she was being raised in Panama. One of the reasons her mother wanted to leave was because she remembered kind of the that type of resurrection uh, resurrectionist activity happening in Panama and seeing the blood mm-hmm. that was draining down the street um you know because of the machetes that they used uh-huh. to use you know on people. And so it was interesting to me because I had never heard that story before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of the reasons that uh, they emigrated to uh, the United States. And then to see it happening in the United States for her was just like, what is happening? You know, um, so it's it's really interesting when you reference like why people are are doing that. Um, but I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons, um, you know, but opportunities being the biggest.
1: Yeah. And it's um, I don't know if it's funny or ironic, maybe ironic now that like there's, you know, I, I'm on TikTok. <laughs> And there's uh, some, parts of TikTok where you have what there are people in Mexico or, um, Ecuador countries that are traditionally, you see people immigrating from them to the U S for opportunity, or you having Americans now traveling to Mexico, uh-huh. gentrification because there's no opportunity for them in the U S now. And I find that so interesting that, you know, they're bringing, they're still on their way just because, you know, hybrid remote work or or remote work now, and they're coming to Mexico or they're coming to Argentina, Uruguay, Panama to live there because they can't afford to live in the U.S. And it's still kind of mind boggling for me to think that now it's reverse. People our age or or younger having to move away from the U.S. because they can't afford housing or they can't afford to, you know, pay their bills. They have to move away from their families so that their wages that are being paid in the U.S. can last them more somewhere else. Which we also see with the retiree community. When I lived in Ecuador, there was a huge expat community in Cuenca from retirees that their social security was not enough to live back home, so they had to live somewhere else.
0: Interesting. So how many places have you been with this UN <laughs> <laughs> internship and all of this? You've been all over the place.
1: Well, when I landed in Ecuador, it's actually when I was in the Peace Corps, I was an education volunteer. Okay. Um, which was great. I, you know, got to experience another Latino culture, um, which is very different from my Mexican one. I learned another dialect of Spanish, which is great. Um, and, like I said, that's where it kind of got awoken to what development work really is, and like concepts like white saviorism and, you know, not bringing my Western perspective and expecting to change the world where people probably don't even want me there. <laughs> they want to change the world themselves for their own communities. So it really kind of made me aware of my own ego and my weaknesses. and I me grew as a person now where I, Development from a different point of view, you know,
0: more grassroots yeah. perspective. So well, since you brought up the term, do you want to tell us about white saviorism? <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> well, it's it's really the concept of westerners
0: in kind
1: of putting their own solutions into problems that they probably cause and telling people how they should develop or grow. And we see it, it's pretty problematic because. There's this belief that as as developed or global North nations, we've hindered the development of other countries, and then we're telling them, well, you're really not growing the way that you should, you're not modernizing the way that you should, this is what you should do. Um, So it's like creating the problem and then providing the solutions in our own terms. Um, And a white savior thinks that they they can come into any community and just solve all the problems from their own perspective without ignoring what the community actually wants or needs. And I kind of saw that in the Peace Corps. Uh, I remember the city, the capital city of Ecuador is is pretty modern. It's pretty cosmopolitan. You have a lot of our international organizations, a lot of embassies. um, And I remember some... Volunteers being disappointed because they couldn't see the poverty that they were coming to solve. And um, I remember we had done, they do in the Peace Corps what they call cultural trips, where they take you um, to either an indigenous community or an Afro Latino community so that you learn that it's not just mestizos. It's not, you know, what you think a typical Latino looks like. Um, There are Splat Latinos, and there's Latinos that are indigenous, and there's Latinos that are Asian. And I remember going to one of the coastal states where it's mostly Afro-Latinos and a volunteer saying, oh, this is what I came for. Like, this is what I thought poverty would look like. I can work with this. That was like so taken aback. So it's like, well, what do you mean this is what you came for? She's like, well, this is what we thought as, as a volunteer What we came. She's like. Quito is like you don't see this and I was like still I'm still shocked to this day that she would say that this is what I came for to help and like the poor people and I was like I just like not like othering people and not seeing them as human beings and mm-hmm. you know getting like poverty fetish I think what is is the term that some people put on that but yeah that type of attitude is pretty pervasive in some development circles and it's something that i try to avoid in my own work and in my own self as i continue to move forward in this field so
0: yeah some of those microaggressions yeah that um you know people don't quite grasp but the more we talk about it the yeah. more people can perhaps get an understanding Um, At least we hope. Yes, (laughs) I
1: sure hope so. I hope that person has reflected on on, on that and, and move beyond that self. So,
0: Yeah, but it's interesting because as you talk about it in, you know, all of these other sense of, you know, working in the Peace Corps or at the UN or, and then, you know, we think about, you know, working at a corporation and they have ERGs there and microaggressions and, you know all of the things that you're talking about happen on, you know, whether it be on a macro scale or on a micro scale. So um, it's really interesting when we think about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how many, you know, perspectives and, and um, just the broad nature of, that's why on this, on the Jolly podcast, I talk to so many different people about so many different things because there's so many different ways to think about what we're doing in the world mm-hmm. and just put a DEI lens on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, to make sure that we're being intentional.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really does manifest in a lot of different fields and similar in very different ways. You know, I think back to the, where I work with right now, like it's, it's so beautiful to see all the different types of nations that are represented and even then, like the kind of politics it takes, like it's to work in this intercultural space. My favorite part is in the morning in the elevator because I will hear colleagues. I, I work in, a I, like I said, my department, I work in the Latino American Caribbean Division, but within the floors, we have the Asian and Pacific, we have African, we have Europe. Um, so as I'm going up to my 11th floor, I pass through all the, the different, you know, I go up all the different floors in the elevator, I'll hear French and I'll hear like Yoruba and I'll hear Spanish and I'll hear Mandarin and Japanese and just all these different languages. And I really am enjoying like working with all these different cultures, but even then it's just like navigating. Like you have to really make sure that you're respectful of people's faces because we all have different perspectives of spaces. Latinos Mm -hmm. are like typically like to be in your face, you know that. (laughs) But there are some other cultures that want more separation. Um, yeah. The way that you greet people and, you know, the way that they want to be greeted and um, it's just, it's difficult and beautiful and sometimes you commit a lot of faux pas and you got to learn. <laughs> so,
0: you got to learn. That's the thing. Just people, you just want people to be open to learning. Yes that's the thing. So that's awesome. So so now tell us I'll ask you the this last question about, you know, kind of some of the things that you're doing there at the UN cuz mm-hmm. I would, you know, what's interesting to me is I think there's so many people here certainly that are looking to increase and improve their own focus on diversity, equity and inclusion because of the innovation and the perspectives that it delivers. And here you have the UN who literally has all of these nations sitting at the table yeah. doing all this wonderful work? What is what is it like?
1: Um it's it's great. Uh and it also comes with a lot of compromise here. Um the type of work that I do, I do program management work or I assist I assist with program management work. Uh as I said, I'm an intern, so I kind of get to do all the tasks that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do um, program design uh, where countries have identified, for example, their needs and how we can help as a nuclear agency. Um, So, for example, in Costa Rica, we're helping design a program that will monitor for severe drought conditions using isotope technology, which I still don't completely understand, but I'm getting there. Uh, nuclear science is really complex, and I really admire uh women that go into those fields because from what I've seen, it's it's male dominated. Um mm. women are making their headway, and and I think the the agency is doing really great in trying to recruit um you know women from all corners of the world. But yeah, so you know, I do program design, I do a lot of finance work, um, working with DHL and a lot of global fight forwarders to make sure that our member states um, have their equipment when they need it. For example, um, the agency was in charge of making sure that during this pandemic, every member state, which is 190, I think we're 130 something, I got to confirm that number. Um, But we made sure that every member state and even members that weren't, even states that are not members of the agency got PCR kits so that they can detect um, Mm -hmm. COVID and treat it so when i came in we were it was already you know 2022 and we we're still trying to make sure that some countries had their their equipment delivered after two years oh wow um, so i've gotten to talk to people in like senegal with like my broken french um people in singapore and um malaysia panama as well cuba with my, with my broken language skills, trying to communicate in English. And sometimes it's really interesting because level of English school, it's our lingua franca, um, at the agency, um, though we have six recognized UN languages. We really, really operate in English. Um, so sometimes it's hard when you're trying to talk about complex issues where there's different levels of, of language skills. Right. And that's I think that's still a, a a hurdle we can better overcome. Not sure how yet, but definitely something to keep in mind as we move forward in development, especially if we want to give ownership of of the projects to local countries. I've also done help with like events. We had our general conference where every member state came to talk about what kind of solutions nuclear technology can give in the field. And there, we talk to ambassadors and ministers of like t- science and technology and education. Um, we do, um, you know, work with how, and we're trying to find ways in which we can cure things like cancer, colon cancer, um, which is pretty treatable with radiotherapy. But not accessible to a lot of developing nations so we want to make sure that they have proper access to healthcare. um we want to make sure that we're fighting child nutrition so it's really a lot of different projects that we do at the agency and it's a lot of rewarding work um and i like i said i love that i do get to connect with people that have different stories to tell that have different experiences and that have a lot of knowledge to impart that maybe I might not have otherwise gotten in another field.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I don't know that I ever thought about uh, the UN as a career opportunity. So I think there's probably lots of people out there that maybe wouldn't think of it either um, until you're talking about it now. And there's such a broad um, connection to doing whether it's you know, technology, science. You know, I mean, there's so many different things that you all are doing, which is phenomenal. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah. And like I said, the UN is really in every any topic that you can possibly think of. It's probably involved with whether it's you know providing more political empowerment for women. You know, you have you women. If it's child nutrition, you have UNICEF. If it's education and world heritage, there's UNESCO. Um, we are also, you know Interpol, which is the International Police, you know, which we talked about. That's also the UN. Um, IEA, like I said, nuclear UN, you have also programs that are very specific that deal in like prolifer- like nuclear proliferation or armed proliferation, trying to prevent arms from spreading more. Um, you have programs that try to preserve art. Um, So any
0: topic that you can think of is probably done by the UN and one of its agencies. Interesting. Really interesting. That's awesome. Well, I, you know, this is interesting. We could go on and on. I think, um, you know, I'm, I think we will have to continue the conversation because I can't wait to see what else you'll be doing over there. Um, So now now that I have a new friend over here, Steph, I'm gonna call you and see how it's going over there.
1: Yeah, and whenever you wanna come over to
0: Vienna, just let me
1: know. We'd happy to to host you here.
0: Look, don't say it, don't say it if you don't want me to come, because oh. Vienna <laughs> might be on my list. Yes,
1: yes, <laughs> that's awesome. Whenever you want.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I absolutely love it. I love your background as well. Thank you. Some, of you. some of them won't be able to see it, but you want to tell them what it is? Yes. It's
1: the Shire. This is where <laughs> Bilbo Baggins lives um, in Frodo as well. And I love Lord of the Rings. I'm kind of a fantasy nerd. <laughs> um, <laughs> and shout out, A <laughs> shout yeah,
0: out to the Lord of the Rings
1: fans. These, these cold winter nights, this is where I want to be. <laughs>
0: No doubt. No doubt. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to more conversations and um, thanks for joining me, Steph. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week.